I'm James Atkinson, and this is Drinks Adventures, the podcast where I speak to some of the world's most exciting producers of beer, wine and spirits and explore trends and issues in the drinks industry today. Hi again, everyone. This week on the podcast, we're joined with a gentleman who may well have been distilling gin before you were even born. In 2017, Beefeater Gin master distiller Desmond Payne celebrated his 50th year as a gin distiller, and he's still going strong today. I caught up with Desmond while he was in Australia recently to have a chat about his career to date and the many changes he's seen in the gin category over that time. Desmond truly is a legend of the gin industry, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Just after this message from one of our valued sponsors. Well, Desmond Payne, thanks so much for joining me on the Drinks Adventures podcast. Great to talk to you. You've been distilling gin now for 50 years. Um, uh, what did the industry look like at the beginning of your career? Oh, very different. Uh, I've just hit 51, actually, and counting. Um, I mean, the first thing is there were nothing like as many brands as there are now. And a lot of that is in the last five to ten years. Um, so it's, it's increased hugely. Um, you know, I was down at Junipalooza uh, in, in Melbourne uh, over the weekend, and they had a, a dinner for the distillers on the Friday night before it started. And there were about, I don't know, 100 people there or something. Uh, and I was commenting that uh, when I first started, which was in 1967, you could have got the whole of the gin distillers of the world on one table. So that's, that's you know, a large part of what's happened. And a huge amount of excitement and uh, new products, creativity, um, stepping outside the traditions of what gin was then. Who was the gin consumer at, at that point in time? It was um, the guy at the golf club, gin and tonic after a round of golf. With the his, English it, gent. Yeah, the English gent, very much. Uh, and also um, in, in the bars, in the pubs, uh, the ladies would have probably been in a separate bar almost in those days, uh, and they would have drunk gin, probably gin and orange. Um, a horrible mixture of you know, cordial squash, orange squash and gin. Uh, that was probably a bit earlier, to be honest. But um, it was very much a sort of middle-class G&T cocktail party thing. And so cocktails, gin cocktails, were, were already a thing at that point? Well, they, they, they were, they had been. It was always an aspirational thing. But to get a cocktail was, you know, if you were in London at one of the, the uh, traditional smart market hotels like Savoy or somewhere, cocktails were always available. But out in the sticks, you know, um, no, if you had a gin, it was a gin and tonic. Um, but that, that was called a cocktail. Now, as you uh, mentioned, a lot of the change that we've seen in gin has been in the last uh, decade, or really even the last five years, that the, the most dramatic change has occurred. What was happening in the industry um, over the earlier stages of your career? Did, did the category, was the category in growth, or was it up and down, or how, how was it trending? It was, it was down, because what had happened to gin then was vodka. Uh, you know, vodka really, uh, in Europe certainly, started to appear and become popular in the late 50s onwards. Um, and vodka was regarded as 
a kind of sexier drink. It was uh, Russian and, you know, a bit sort of daring and brave. Um, and it took a lot of the white spirit market, which was gin. So vodka became the fashionable drink, and that really pushed uh, gin into decline. Now, the first, as you said, 25 years of your career was at Plymouth Gin. How did working with Plymouth versus working for Beefeater compare? It's largely a question of scale, you know. Um, I mean, Plymouth Gin had been uh, a big, important brand. And after the war, uh, it kind of went into decline. They found it hard to get uh, good quality neutral alcohol. They struggled on with whatever they could get. Um, and, and it kind of lost its, its way. You know, if you look in the, the original uh, Savoy cocktail book from the so 20s and 30s, virtually all the gin recipes are, are based on Plymouth gin. But that, that was kind of in decline. Um, so it, when I was there, it was quite small, um, but kept going. Uh, it still had a hugely loyal following, partly the Royal Navy, hence the Navy strength gin that we do. In your time as a distiller, have you uh, mostly been working with pre-existing recipes and is it only really the last few years that you've had the chance to play around with some innovation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, Plymouth Gin, you know, I, I made Plymouth Gin to the Plymouth Gin recipe and that's still what's happening today. Uh, and when I came out to Beefeater, um, although a much larger scale operation, much larger, uh, you know, the recipe was set in stone. Um, and in fact, in my office at the distillery in London, uh, the portrait of James Burrow, the founder of Beefeater, hangs opposite my desk. And he's watching me to make sure I don't change his recipe. So, you know, it was just carry on doing the same and you better keep it the same. Um, and it was 10 years ago uh, when I first had a chance, after 40 years of making gin, uh, to make my own which is uh, Beefy to 24. So that was a huge learning curve. Turn the picture around to face the wall for a while. Uh, yeah, and t tell us about the, the process that went into creating Beefy to 24. Well, it, the first thing was, hooray, at last, my turn to make a gin. Good, you know, about time. And then I started thinking, well, hang on a minute. What, what do I do? What, what do I do that's different? And when I... Uh, when I think about how gins are made, all the gins that are out there now, thousands of them, it, it comes down to two things. One, one is what I call the, the what and the how. So the what is the recipe, what botanicals you use, juniper plus whatever. That's where the flavor comes from. And the how is actually how you make it. And it's a combination of those two things that makes all the gins different. So one of the things with uh, Beef Eater, you know, that's a beautifully balanced recipe tamper with it at your peril kind of thing. Uh, one of the things to do for beef eater is that when we put all our botanicals into the still with the neutral alcohol, we leave it there to, to steep, to rest for 24 hours. And that really helps to develop the flavor, the complexity of flavor by giving it time. So I didn't want to change that. So my option then was to change the what, change the recipe. And I scratched my head and I pulled stuff out of hedgerows and thought about it and waited for the inspiration to strike. Uh, all these things kind of happen four o'clock in the morning, don't they? You think, ah, Eureka, I've got it. I know what to do. Uh, I know what to try. First thing was to use grapefruit in addition to the orange and lemon. It's already a beef eater. 
that was already in a product we'd done called Crown Jewel, which was a, a duty-free travel retail product, 50%, uh, and Bifida plus grapefruit. It just puts the gin in a different place. Uh, so that was kind of worth looking at. And the, the inspiration really came to use tea as a botanical. Um, tea is a really good flavor in terms of its ability to mix with other, with other flavors. So that, the, the combination of those two things was the process. But it took me 18 months to get this right. Uh, I was in no hurry. I think the marketing guys were, you know, they were saying, Desmond, where's this new gin? Uh, we've kind of got the packaging design and there's a date in the diary for the launch, but you know, I'm not, I'm not just ready yet, not just ready. But I did it on my own. I had no, um, if I say nobody interfering, that sounds bad, but uh, it was definitely my, my project. There are distilleries around these days that are knocking out new gins every few weeks. Um, do you ever feel like you would have liked to have had the shackles off to be able to really experiment with new products like that? Earlier than 24, yes, but uh, there wasn't the market for it then. You know, 24 was one of the first of the new, the new uh, styles of gin coming out. Um, and I've done a good few since. I mean, some have been just limited editions. I did a summer gin, a winter gin, obviously. That was going to happen after summer. Market gin, uh, do a barrel age gin. Uh, so I think I've done eight or nine gins since, uh, since P3 to 24. Uh, and it's great. It's really, shackles are off. And, and shackles are off and the pressure's on, actually. You know, we've just launched a Beefy to Pink, and that's uh, something very different. Tell me about the pink gin boom that we're currently seeing. What's the heritage of pink gin, and what do you think's driving the current interest? The first thing is, I think none of us really saw it coming. Um, pink gin, traditionally pink gin, you know, back in the, in the, in the 60s, 70s, a pink gin would be uh, probably Plymouth gin with a drop of uh, Angostura bitters. That's what made it pink. And it was very much a, a naval tradition. Um, but the fashion for pink gin now is very different. It's a different thing altogether. And it is fruit flavored and colored. So the biggest market for gin outside USA is Spain. And it's the lead market in Europe. And it's the biggest market by far for beef eater. And gins in Spain are just crazy. There's, I don't know how many brands and a few more since we've started talking probably. Um, and there are a lot of gins, lots of tonics and the Spanish are very uh, experimental and they're prepared to try anything with their gins. So what we saw being really popular were, were, were pink gins. There were a few brands that sort of led it. Uh, there was one called Puerto de Andes, uh, which was the first pink gin, uh, fruit flavored, a bit sweeter. I think really to attract uh, a younger consumer coming through uh, onto something that's a bit more fun, a bit more easy drinking. Um, and they became hugely popular, and all the brands started to produce, uh, to introduce versions in pink. So we held back for a while to really kind of get a view on what was happening in the market. We didn't want to just jump into something that was uh, going to be here today, gone tomorrow. But it became very clear that this was here to stay for a, for a while, certainly. Uh, but we wanted to get it right. Um, and ours is, uh, some of them just say red berry or fruit or something. Ours is actually strawberry, 
Do all these new pink gins stay true to the category of what is gin? Of what is gin, yes, uh, but they're not London gin. You know, London gin is, is not geographical. London gin is, a, is a, a, a method of production. And for London gin, you can't add anything after distillation with the botanicals that changes the flavor uh, or, or color. So anything that's pink, by its very nature, can't be London gin. Um, so it comes into the category of distilled gin. You know, there's some well-known, one, one particular well-known Scottish uh, gin that adds cucumber and rose petal after distillation. It's that same principle. Certain flavors don't distill, and color doesn't distill. So if you want these things, you have to add them after distillation, which is still uh, uh, categorized as distilled gin. But the, the definitions on gin are, honestly, now they're behind the times, but it takes a long time to change a definition legally. And gin has overtaken that, the excitement in gin with uh, flavored gins and barrel-aged gins and old Tom gins. There's no definition for them, but everybody's doing them. Uh, I was on the committee that made the definition for London gin 20 years ago, and that took 20 years to get into European law. Uh, and gin's moving faster than that. So it's good to have an open category because it lets people do what they want. If you tie yourself down too much on definition, you, you limit your options for the future and you never know what the future is. I, mean, I, I think about the French wine laws, you know, where they, where they dictate how you can prune and which branches you can prune and how much you can produce. However bumper the harvest is, you can't make more than that amount in your appellation. And they've, they've really tied themselves down. And uh, I remember bringing a French winemaker to Australia 25 years ago. I was amazed that you can suddenly graft Shiraz on a Chardonnay rootstock because that's what's popular. You can't do that in France. So what I'm saying is you need to keep your options open because um, don't tie yourself down too far for the future. But there has to be some kind of ring fencing. There's a point at which it stops being gin. And there's some distillers that are running a bit of a campaign at the moment against so-called fake gin. Um, Heyman's Gin has, uh, has been the one spearheading in that, and there's been other distillers making similar comments about their concern that a lot of the products that are out now, they're not juniper-forward enough. Is that a concern that you have? It's a concern in that how far it may go. The European definition of gin says predominantly juniper by taste. Well, that went out the door decades ago. By taste, really? I mean, the moment you put citrus in something, it's going to dominate. Um, I mean, for example, a beef eater, if I buy, if I buy 50 tons of juniper, I might be buying three tonnes of, of uh, orange peel. But the orange is up front, it always is. It's got sharp elbows. So what I do insist on, and it's something that I was very keen on with, uh, with Beef Eater Pink, was that the, even though that the top note is strawberry, otherwise you wouldn't call it strawberry gin, the gin character comes shining through it. And the juniper is there and all the other things are there. I think Honestly, that's very much down to our 24-hour steeping because it kind of holds the whole thing together. So the juniper is there, predominant. No, if you call something strawberry gin, the strawberry is predominant, or rhubarb, or whatever it is. You made the comment 
at the dinner the other night that um, you were very pleased to taste some gins on that night that were very juniper forward. Yeah, yeah, they were, which is refreshing. You know, gin is about juniper, but there are many ways of approaching juniper and, and delivering it. And you know, we need to keep it, keep some fluidity to it, if you like, keep, keep, it, keep it moving, keep some uh, opportunities for, gin of all the spirits can do that. Um, you know, you think of the other spirits, all the whiskies of the world, they're, they're very different, but they're all made from grain. And all the brandies of the world, it's just the grape, there's nothing else in there. But gin gives us this opportunity to, to really approach it from different directions, look at different, you know, why did I put tea in Beefeater 24? Because it works. I don't think anybody else was using tea. I wasn't making a tea gin. But it, it just changes the way the other botanicals relate to each other. And, produce something with excitement in a, in a different way. And flavoured gins, orange and lemon gin were hugely popular in the 50s. So when we say uh, this is not gin, this is not gin, we need to actually, as well as looking at what's happening now, actually look back a bit and see what was happening then, because there were a lot of flavoured gins around then. Um, nobody complaining. When was the moment when you saw that the tide was starting to turn and, and thinking to yourself, wow, gin's cool again? Gin's always been cool to me. <laughs> it's funny, I moved up from Plymouth to London in 95. There weren't many cocktail bars in Plymouth, let me put it that way. Uh, but in London, you know, I, I, I discovered that the wonderful Duke's Hotel and the American Bar at the Savoy, and they, they've been serving cocktails forever. So uh, I was kind of introduced to cocktails more. They'd always been there, but it was new to me, and the new gins beginning to appear. Um, but really, it's in the last 10 years. We suddenly see it uh, escalating, and they're all over the place. I mean. How, how many Australian gins are there now? I mean, whatever we say, there's a few more. Um, I was in, in Scotland uh, earlier this year uh, judging the Scottish Gin Awards, and then there were 92 Scottish gins. Same in Ireland, there's gins everywhere, as there would have been back when people like James Burrow started. London gin originally was the London gin distillers, but there was gin in Plymouth, there was gin in all the cities around the country. They all had a, a brewery and a gin distillery and, and whatever else, you know. Um, and then it kind of concentrated in the big cities, a population like London. Now it's all coming back again. What do you think the quality is like overall with so many new distillers getting products <laughs> on the market, you know, uh, very rapidly? Quality, generally speaking, is pretty good. Uh, I was really impressed uh, in Melbourne at, at talking to the, some of the distillers about the ethos for you know doing things uh, that help the community or, or, or protected species that were dying out or looking after strawberries or whatever it was. Um, and that's a really good, very contemporary approach to how people do business. That's a great thing about this day and age generally. Some of the new gins are weird, honestly, <laughs> <laughs> honestly. I'm not naming any names, but my message, if you like, or my philosophy is, for goodness sake, keep it simple. You know, you don't have to go crazy to find something that nobody else has got. I, I, I use the expression, you, you don't have to row a canoe up the Orinoco River to 
climb the tallest tree in the forest to pick that flower that only appears every seven years as your gym botanical because A, you're not going to find it next year uh, and you know, it's not worth the effort. Keep it simple. The really hard thing in my job at Beefeater is to make sure every batch, every bottle is the same because all the things they're using are, are variable. Right now we're looking at juniper. The new crop of juniper is coming in now, uh, mostly Italian, and it's not cultivated, it grows wild. So the one thing we have to have, we have no control over. Um, so they're out there picking and they, they, find the, they get a license to forage and they find a juniper tree and they knock the berries off and they hit, it, hit the branch with a stick, put them into a sack, sell them on to maybe the local cooperative. Uh, we deal through UK spice merchants we've dealt with for decades and decades. And we will look at, in about a month's time, uh, we will look at anything up to 200 samples of this year's crop of juniper. Uh, and what we do as well is just looking at the berries and crushing them and nosing them, which is the, to me, is the, the ultimate test. Uh, for each sample, we do a small lab distillation to collect the oil. And the oil we put into a nosing glass with neutral alcohol so we can smell how it comes across in distillation. So we go down that line of 200 samples saying, no, 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 yes, maybe, maybe. Oh, that's a good one. That's only good if I add some of that one to it. So we create a blend up front with our basic materials. And by having that many options to look at, we can get it. Some years it's pretty, pretty difficult, but I'm buying two years ahead always. So uh, bottom line is no, no juniper, no gin. The resurgence of gin has obviously been a great thing for Beefeater, but then on the other hand, there's a lot of competition with so many new brands yeah. around. Has the company grown in, in spite of that? Yes, yeah, quite definitely. The danger is when there are thousands of gins, in some countries you might lose a bit of market share because it's spread over a much wider base. But in terms of volume, uh, yes, we're, we're up and, and new emerging markets are extraordinarily uh, successful. I mean, places where gin was really not significant, like South America, you know, Brazil has suddenly gone wonderfully crazy about gin almost overnight. I have to say, part of that success is down to things like uh, Beefy to Pink, because that certainly produces some volume. You could have obviously gone from being a distiller to being a brewer or distilling whiskey or doing something other than gin. What do you think it is that's kept you um, in gin for your whole career? Yeah, I don't know. I, I just find gin fascinating. I, I, I actually started off in the wine trade in London when I left school and I worked in the Harrods store down in the basement bottling wine, just learning about different wines. Uh, and then I joined a wine and spirit company and as part of my sort of training month by month in different departments, uh, they put me in the gin distillery. And I think what really attracted me was all these uh, sacks and piles of different aromas and botanicals and roots and flowers and seeds and things. Um, and, and what you can do with it to turn it into something that people enjoy drinking. And that's still the case. Um, I, I do honestly enjoy the, uh, the fruits of my labors. Obviously, having been at Juniper Loser last week, you would have tried some gins made with Australian botanicals. What was your impression of those? Were they unlike anything you'd, you'd had before? It's really interesting to see around the world the use of local botanicals in gin. And it's a really, 
good and clever thing to do. The only thing is, I think it kind of restricts it to a local market, or it has the danger of doing that. Uh, because internationally, people are not necessarily used to those uh, flavors. I saw a lot of pepperberry around, for example, um, lemon myrtle. These are quite, quite strong flavors. So it's fine, it's great to use them, but for me, just it's a delicate touch. Um, I think one of the dangers that we could be losing sight of is that from my point of view, I'm, I'm very much aware that as a gin distiller, what I'm making is actually not what people drink. So in other words, something else has happened to it. I'm producing gin, but people are drinking gin and tonic or a cocktail or whatever, whatever. So it's that next step that, that uh, gives the, the finished product and, and the final bit of excitement, if you like, to the drink. Um, and for me, a good gin should work in whatever direction the bartender or the consumer at home wants to take it and still work. So it should be, I call it a sociable spirit, it mixes well. Um, and if you're too much about one flavor or very dominant in one flavor, you limit that ability. And I think we're slightly losing sight of that essential raison d'etre for gin to be, to be mixable and work in many different directions. I reckon we'll leave it there, Desmond. It's been a fascinating chat, so thanks so much for taking the time to, to catch up with me. My pleasure. Great to talk to you. The Drinks Adventures podcast is produced by me, James Atkinson, with additional production and mixing by Dave Robertson. You can find complete transcripts, links, and other information on the show at drinksadventures.com.au. You can follow me on all social media platforms at by James Atkinson. Like my Facebook page, James Atkinson Drinks Adventures, to be kept informed of podcast giveaways and other news about the show. The Drinks Adventures podcast needs your support as listeners. Please do us a favour and leave an honest review and rating for the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. We love hearing your feedback and it helps inform other people this is a show worth listening to. Or simply drop us a line at hello at drinksadventures.com.au.